All right. Uh, we are back with Stan Cox, who has prepared another dispatch for his in real time uh, series. Stan, you guys remember, is the author of The Green New Deal and Beyond and The Path to a Livable Future. And he is now posting a monthly bulletin on the unfolding climate and electoral political crises facing the United States of America. Um, and you're going to do that until at least uh, the next election, the presidential election, something like this? For a, yeah, a couple of years, maybe not all the way till the next presidential election, if we have one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I will wait to see if we actually have You'll one. have some kind of exercise. <laughs> yeah, yes. Come on, there will be people yes, going we'll a... and punching things in and putting yeah. them into boxes. <laughs> yeah, you've got to have that somehow. Yeah, we'll have a Hungarian election. <laughs> <laughs> but that, the, uh, but the, these things are posted at uh, uh, City Lights Books, which is uh, citylights.com com slash blog there it is there it is city lights uh publisher of i guess the most recent books of yours right the last two that's right yeah okay stan so you know i uh, you've been talking about uh you know democracy in these blog posts and every time you say that i kind of roll my eyes um you know and because i don't i just don't i just don't buy it <laughs> that, that there's a democracy now uh but you well, you know so you're taking uh you know you're taking a direction now that i that i i fully identify with because you're mm -hmm. sort of uh, it seems to me maybe this is a a self-serving reading of it but it seems to me that you're basically in this in this latest post the people versus petrocracy now petrocracy i could i could probably believe that we have um <laughs> but uh democracy no but um but you in this dispatch the people versus petrocracy you're kind of saying um you're almost like blowing off um, the the national level electoral exercise and you're saying look we you know it may be uh that we have to just uh work on the local level mm -hmm. and so you're taking uh you're taking a, a deeper look at what's ha happening um at the local level with local struggles um and two very interesting um you know things uh, local i mean the first one being the indigenous uh struggles uh against um you know petroleum corporations and pipelines and so on pipelines and uh and so what let's talk about that one first because that, i mean it's local on the one hand and on the other hand it's pretty much all over the the country all over the continent um so yeah let, let's start us off with that as they say on democracy now stan cox talk about that i'll, I'll, talk. <laughs> yes, I, I'll talk about it <laughs> but first, I want to talk about uh, democracy for just a second. Okay, all right, um, all right. Give me, give me a just, little pushback. It's fair. Just you can't a, just well, let it go. Well, not, not pushback, because I agree with you. But I, I, in my defense, what I've been saying is that uh, we, we don't have a, a real democracy. Um, that in, 
In other words, we don't have a multiracial pluralistic uh, democracy. And that um, what we do have, the sort of um, the stunted form of representative government um, uh, is not, it's untenable at this point for things to stay the way they are and that they're, uh, we've arrived at a T-junction and, and we'll have to either make a, a move toward full-blown um, multiracial pluralistic democracy, or uh, it's going to go uh, the other way and we'll have what this, it's variously called a competitive authoritarianism and yeah, that's like a in, good one. <laughs> in hung, Hungary, where, as you say, you have elections, and uh, yeah. but uh, but they don't mean anything, um, and so um, and and so then in this um, this post, I'm saying with regard to climate, that um, that our choices here are um, either um, to continue not having any. Uh, climate policy that's going to um, you know, prevent disaster or having a, a, a very aggressive pro-fossil fuel um, uh, government that um, is going, it's going to make it even worse. So it's, a, it's a, uh, between bad and worse here. And so either way, um, it's, um, um, state, local, regional um, action is going to be a lot more uh, important. It's all we've got. We, it won't prevent, um, it, it won't um, end the climate emergency, but it can uh, at least maybe prevent the, the worst of it. And, um, and so uh, this, uh, the first of these two examples, because I I was kind of getting tired of um, writing about the Electoral Count Act of 1887 and, uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, autocracy and, and so forth. And so I thought, well, let's look for examples of what, what is happening on the ground. And, um, and I was um, astonished by, it was, it was late last year, I think, a report from the Indigenous Environment Network, um, adding up the um, all of the, I think they went through uh, 17 um, actions across North America um, over the past few years. Um, some of them, everybody knows about uh, Standing Rock and uh, the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and, um, about, about half of these um, were in Canada, about half in the US or, and then of course there were ones that uh, like Keystone going through both. Um, but they, and they were all either um, uh, cases where the, um, the uh, people protesting the pipelines were, um, um, there, there were all cases where people protesting the pipelines were um, led by, they were all led by um, indigenous um, uh, groups. They, they were out, out front um, in all these cases. 
and they either were um, had been successful or they they are still in progress. And the uh, Indigenous Environment Network and Oil Change International estimated that if all of these are successful, it would account for um, and and they in, in that flow of uh, fossil fuels was stopped, it would account for about 25% of the total greenhouse gas emissions of uh, Canada and the US put together. Wow, that's an amazing, <laughs> amazing and, number. Yeah, and of course, it, it, uh, there's a long, long way to go, uh, although you know, some of the big ones like uh, Keystone are, are have been knocked out, but there, there are other ones that um, they're still fighting. One interesting case um, is the, um, the Line 3 pipeline going through Minnesota that um, they have not managed to get that stopped yet. It, it got constructed, and, and I think it's in, in use. Um, but they, you know, they're still fighting that. But that experience has kind of spun off another effort to shut down a carbon dioxide uh, pipeline. Now, th this reason they're pumping CO2 uh, is that there are all these corn ethanol plants in uh, Iowa, um, uh, Minnesota, the upper Midwest, that, um, you know, the in making this corn ethanol for uh, fueling cars, it, it requires uh, burning a lot of uh, fossil fuels in these ethanol plants. And so they have their own CO2 emissions. So they're wanting to make them green by capturing the CO2 and uh, piping it through uh, you know, many hundreds of miles of pipeline, which are going to do the same ecological damage as uh, oil pipelines. And also- I've never heard of a pure CO2 pipeline. <laughs> Is that a new innovation, a new green uh, innovation, or has it always been? It hasn't always been, but there there is a lot of building them lately because um, as with these ethanol plants, they're wanting to, um, so we can keep burning fossil fuels. Um, there's all this talk about uh, you know, carbon capture, um, scrub the CO2 out of the smokestacks from say a coal-fired uh, power plant. And uh, with the idea of liquefying the CO2 and pumping it underground into old oil wells or something where it'll be uh, sequestered. This um, is uh, expected to Require you know, if they do this on a large scale, expected to require uh, uh, two million miles of uh, pipelines cool. just for CO two, uh, and added to the uh, similar you know, number of miles that we already have for uh, gas and oil. Um, and uh, one of and some of these pipelines have been built, and one of them, and uh, a couple of years ago, in Satarsha, I think that's how you pronounce it, Mississippi. It, it ran by this town of Satarsha, Mississippi. Um, it uh, sprung a big leak, and before anybody uh, knew it, 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 pretty much everybody in the little town was uh, passing out. Um, they, uh, I think, fifty people. Had to go to the hospital. They had 
all, you know, all of these uh, symptoms of carbon dioxide uh, poisoning. And, and so it, if we're gonna, I think they're like 20,000 miles or something of CO2 pipelines now, you're gonna have 2 million of them going across the country. But anyway, they're fighting, they're using the lessons they've learned in fighting the line three pipeline in Minnesota to now um, try to stop this uh, uh, CO2 pipeline. Right? And so I'd, um, in this post then I went through um, set briefly through several of these um, different projects that um, the uh, indigenous uh, um, led movements are uh, trying to save us from. I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah, this I think is the key, uh, the key, I wouldn't say the keystone because that's <laughs> ridiculous of a pun, but no, it's the key because um, when you look at the history of this continent and you think of like all the different ways that the environment uh, has, was shaped by uh, indigenous people, you know, whether it's the, the plains, um, the great plains and the buffalo and the, the grasslands or the Amazon, you know, uh, reading Charles Mann or whatever you realize, even the Amazon is a kind of a cultural landscape. Uh, it was inhabited, the area was inhabited for thousands of years before the area was a rainforest. So, right. um, so it's like everything, <laughs> I, I, I know a lot about forestry, you know, you, you've studied agronomy, you know, a lot about agriculture, but like everything that the, that the European kind of colonizer brought in terms of forest management is mm -hmm. like the short road to extinction. <laughs> um, it's like let's create yeah. homogeneous stands let's cut them down let's never let a stand become decadent which means mm -hmm. you know having any more growth or living material yeah. that isn't economically usable guided entirely by financial gain and uh, comparative financial advantage so this is you know when you apply this logic to a forest you quickly get you know a completely destroyed ecosystem and likewise, when you apply this logic to the planet as a whole, or the energy system, you know, here we are with climate change. So mm -hmm. indigenous people sure. never ran into this. They've been here for tens of thousands of years without doing this. So you yeah. know, <laughs> we could do considerably worse than just saying, all right, look, yeah. uh, we screwed it up. <laughs> <laughs> Have it all back. <laughs> just let us yeah. know what to do. <laughs> right. Yeah, and in uh, the uh, and the analog of the uh, abuse of forest that <clears throat> um, the uh, European people brought here in this part of the country in Canton mm -hmm. is where I am was um, taking <clears throat> moldboard plows through the prairie and and destroying that those uh, mm -hmm. uh, ancient um, equilibrium uh, ecosystems and. Um, and we, you know, we've been um, degrading the the soils of the country ever since. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get away from forests and soils <laughs> and go right into the big city. <laughs> yeah. So the other um, you know, group that I was you know, always <clears throat> kind of been fascinated by is that, that I included in this. Uh, 
uh, third post is the Los Angeles Bus Riders Union. Um, and um, that's um, yeah, just what it sounds like. It's the, uh, the bus riders of uh, Los Angeles <clears throat> organized in this um, goes back to the early 1990s when they um, were first, um, uh, they first challenged the city over their uh, public transportation policy. Um, <clears throat> at the time, um, this was when, sorry, <clears throat> when the um, city of Los Angeles was, um, you know, they famously had done away with their uh, streetcars back uh, in the 20s or something, and um, supposedly General Motors had something to do with it. I, I don't know. But anyway, they were wanting to go back to having a rail system and were building this um, uh, commuter rail system that would bring people in from the suburbs to uh, the city, and it was going to be green and reduce traffic and, and emissions and so forth. Um, but the bus riders were um, saying, well, yeah, that's uh, fine. And, you know, having this deluxe uh, train uh, would bring, be bringing um, you know, affluent su suburbanites uh, in, into the city while we're having to ride on these uh, old dilapidated um, dirty buses that um, may or may not show up at your bus stop once an hour, once every two hours, and, and you know, totally um, ineffective. Although in buses are needed to in, in more densely populated areas because you, you can't have uh, railroad tracks going uh, uh, block to block and, and, and um, taking people who, you know, we, people who may have several miles to go to their um, workplace, too far to walk, but not far enough for a train to be, be useful. Um, and, and they said, we need a clean, efficient um, bus system. But instead, they were, the city was putting um, to, uh, what was it, um, about you know, up to $20 subsidy per passenger um, into building and operating this rail system. Uh, when their subsidy for um, uh, the bus system was less than a dollar uh, per passenger, the rail system was carrying um, about 26,000 passengers a day at that time. The bus system was uh, carrying uh, 350,000 a day. 80% of them were um, uh, Black, Latino, uh, Asian, Pacific Islander. Um, and so it was very clear discrimination. They, uh, the bus riders brought a, a case against the transportation system. On, on, uh, it, it was racial discrimination. And there uh, is a law that says uh, publicly funded transportation cannot um, uh, discriminate on the basis of race. And they won a, a consent decree in 1994. And, um, and, and they actually got the right to 
work with the city to uh, improve the uh, bus system and and to keep prices down. It, it, there was, um, you know, it was a lot of money and, and it subsidized the, the tickets and also uh, improved the bus system. They wanted uh, to convert to natural gas buses so they didn't have uh, to breathe diesel fumes in their neighborhoods and they didn't have electric uh, buses at that time. Um, and so forth. So they, uh, that was quite successful, but that decree uh, had a 10 year expiration date. So in 2004, it expired. The city raised the uh, ticket prices again. They uh, cut the number of uh, routes and, and stops. And uh, so they had to um, start fighting the battle all over. Um, but they won another big victory in. 2012, because um, there was a ballot initiative uh, um, that year um, you know, in, the same, in the same election that um, uh, Barack Obama was uh, reelected in, in 2012, but uh, a local ballot initiative that would have allocated $90 billion um, to this, uh, the rail system again, and to uh, building more freeways, because of course, LA needed more <laughs> freeways. Um, and uh, the Bus Riders Union managed a big uh, get out the vote campaign and, and managed to defeat this uh, thing called uh, Measure J that um, would have um, uh, put all the money into, once again, into these systems that are not going to um, serve the, the majority of people in the in the city, and so uh, you know the you know the Green New Deal um, type visions always involve a lot of uh, light rail and so forth. And sure, you know, you have uh, fewer emissions if you have uh, electric. Yeah, uh, I mean it's it's systems, sort of like the but... difference between like um, which is a real difference. To, to keep watching for as the Green New Deal is rolled out, which is the difference between building green infrastructure for everybody or just sort of gentrifying yeah. the existing infrastructure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. And uh, Eric, <clears throat> Eric Mann, one of the founders of the union, um, and this was back in during the, the 90s, I did want to read how he characterized this idea of um, uh, rail versus uh, bus and uh, having, and, and also at that, you know, they had the nicer buses were going to the suburbs and, and the trains were going to the suburbs. So he said, this is a, was a philosophy within, the, uh, within public transport. Uh, it was based primarily on the importance of the quote, choice rider. According to this line of argument, the main purpose public transportation is to reduce congestion and auto emissions thus it would be precisely well, I, thought it was, I thought it was to get around <laughs> no yeah I that's what get, yeah i thought it was to get from point a to point yeah. b <laughs> that shows how much you know <laughs> so they're saying uh, it would be precisely the suburban car driver who would be targeted to ride public transportation according to this argument the choice rider who lives in the suburbs pervert prefers to drive their car 
has, has to be attracted somehow by better and more convenient service. On the other hand, according to the theory, services do not need to be attractive to gain the ridership of the transit dependent, since by definition, they have no choice because they don't perfect. have a car. It's a perfect, it's a perfect, perfect North American theory. This is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just tells you so much. <laughs> so now what the, the activists in, in LA are um, saying needs to happen, which is pretty obvious, is that they need to dedicate more and more lanes of the, the streets and freeways to buses and have a you know, big electric bus system, have them um, using that because that, it's kind of the inverse of the choice rider theory. In this case, you make it more and more um, difficult and inconvenient to drive a car because it will cause more and more congestion of, of the roads and push car drivers into um, taking the uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the reaction of drivers is, you know, how could you deprive us of this freedom and this yeah. choice? But it's like yeah. there's no there's no consideration that the alternative is actually to deprive people yeah. without cars of freedom and choice. Right. Yeah. Methodically. <laughs> and that's been, I don't know, the past 60 or 70 years of, <laughs> of urban policy. Right. Is mm -hmm. is just taking freedoms away from yeah. people who don't have cars. And I think there are some cities where they are systematically trying to reduce the number of parking lots and parking spaces because if people people aren't going to come just drive through the city if they can't stop. Yeah, I mean, it's a yeah. Oh, it's a tough one because you also um, that's also potentially a very gentrifying thing, right? Because then the price mm -hmm. of each individual parking space goes up and they invariably hand that over to a private company. And yeah. Yeah. They make... <laughs> wow. Yeah. Urban policy. But, you know, this is I, I like this. I, I like this dispatch, Stan, you know, mm -hmm. because whenever you talk about, well, I mean, the past few, when you talk about either national elections or vehicular homicides or both, you know, it just, <laughs> I just find, I don't know why, but I just find it a little bit of a downer. Um, these kinds of things is like, I also think these are how national level changes historically are one is by mm -hmm. people doing it anyway. And then yeah. they'll create a government policy almost to stop you from doing it that way. Like, don't, don't do yeah. it that way. We're going to do it for yeah. you. Right. Someone, yeah. uh, someone on Twitter, Roderick Day that I follow on Twitter, he was saying like, I, apparently they've canceled a lot of school lunch pro programs in, in different <sighs> states. And he was saying like, to get the school programs back, you have to do what they did to get them in the first place, which is community organizations and Black Panthers or communists right. are feeding yeah. people school lunches. And then the government's like, oh, my God, if we don't do this, uh, they're going to make political gains out of it. So we have to do yeah. it. So the same, yeah, exactly. you know, this is the it's like understanding how how change is made, which I think is often one of the things environmentalists don't understand because yeah. they don't mm -hmm. see their history as part of uh, yeah. a broader social struggle um, yeah. too often. Well, so I think you'll like uh, the next dispatch because um, uh, next week, over the weekend, uh, uh, Preeti and I are going to uh, DC because the Poor People's Campaign led by 
Reverend William Barber and a whole host of other you know, groups are, are doing a big um, action in, in uh, DC. And um, so I'm uh, gonna be real interested, especially in, in talking with uh, a lot of the people there. And, uh, and that sounds, uh, yeah, oh, I'm very and, much looking forward to it. And hopefully <laughs> you'll send me some dispatches. <laughs> Uh, from there, it's on the weekend, is it? Um, or next yes, year? it's uh, Juneteenth weekend, so it'll be 18th and uh, okay. 19th. Okay, when so you have another week that's happening. And we're, um, even though I've been trashing rail, we're uh, taking Am <laughs> Amtrak uh, to get there. <laughs> well, there's so many problems, you know, people have been comparing the high speed rail network that has been thrown up in yeah. China. You know, and yeah. asking why can't we do this uh, in in North America? And mm -hmm. it's pretty obvious that you know, if China has to get a right of way or whatever, <laughs> they can do it. They can compensate the people mm -hmm. for it, um, and so on. And mm -hmm. also, you know, they build infrastructure, and we <laughs> sort of cannibalize ours. Yeah, so. uh, yeah. and on that, there's another group to um, mention here called Solutionary rail and they're they're pointing out that high speed rail constructing it is extremely carbon intensive and, and expensive and you've got to as you say you've got to uh, get eminent domain on yeah. a lot of land whereas if we just use the uh, rail, rail existing improve the existing yeah. rail tracks and have regular and not snail rail, but not high speed <laughs> rail, just um, good, solid, old fashioned uh, rail. electric, electric uh, yeah. rail. Electrified rail. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I didn't get to tell, uh, you know, I, I, I have, um, I think I'll save it for another day, but I've been researching. Um, there was a book uh, that I was, I actually did a blurb for called Socialist States and the Environment by Salvatore Engel de Mauro. And it was interesting because ah. he says, he says he was, you could sort of see he was like an anarchist and he's moved in a less anarchistic direction and more <laughs> like state uh, power direction, which, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. cough, cough. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's just say uh, that spoke to me. And he, he was, um, he was talking about how he looked at expecting, you know, the worst. He looked into some of the policies of the, ex you know, so-called actually existing socialist yeah. countries, mm -hmm. China, Soviet Union, and Cuba, and found a much more complex picture uh, in terms of yeah. their environmental programs than he expected. Um, so there's, you know, there's obviously Cuban agroecology, which would be like the mm -hmm. big achievement. Yeah. Um, and then in China, there's this huge... Uh, what is it called? Three, three North afforestation program where they're basically, you know, it's the biggest forest restoration project. And there, you know, yeah. there's a lot of complexity to it, like whether, yeah. you know, how well it's working in terms of their mm -hmm. own goals, but you know, it has, it has made a pretty big yeah. difference and it's, you know, it's just going on. And again, it's a thing that China can do that, like, you know, hard to imagine, uh, a democratic country yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pulling that off um and then apparently there was a soviet forest conservation program uh that i'm just starting to read about uh where they you know stalin 
was interested in forest conservation, not for forest conservation, but for water conservation. So he he came, someone convinced him that without uh, conserving a huge chunk of the land as forest, that the hydrology of Russia would be completely screwed up, which of course is true. Yeah. Uh, so they, you know, they made, at, at once World War II was over, they had a plan before World War II to do it and they started to do it. But then of course, you know, you get invaded by the Nazis, you lose yeah. 30 million right. people, you know, it kind of interrupts your <laughs> conservation plan. But but right after they also resumed uh, that yeah. program. So I, I, I haven't gotten to the 50s yet. I'm, I'm still just learning about <laughs> Morozov, someone named Georgi no. Morozov. Have you ever heard of him? No, no. Very interesting. Uh, very interesting, because <laughs> he was basically saying we should reject the German forest model of just pure kind of economic yield it doesn't fit ecologically with russia it also doesn't fit with our russian peasants and what they know it doesn't use what they know about the forest it doesn't uh you know and there's like a natural he had this kind of sort of like almost spiritual idea of like the forest <laughs> wants to be a certain kind of stand and yeah. by cutting it too fast or whatever you're you're stopping it from being what it's trying to be. So, mm, it, yeah. you know, it's not yeah. exact, you know, it's a different <laughs> way of looking at it, but it's also like, you could say that's a bit, what, hokey pokey or I don't know, like a little <laughs> bit uh, non-materialist, but on the other hand, it's not like the German alternative, which was the forest wants to be cut down and sold yeah, <laughs> yeah. to the highest bidder. I don't know if that's, you know, what the forest wants. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but yeah, so I'll tell you more about those in future dispatches, uh, you know, that maybe if they fit with, if you're doing something more agricultural or if you're doing something mm -hmm. more forest oriented. But I, I just wanted to tell you, I didn't get to tell you the story of Costa Rica. I don't know how much you know about Costa Rican history, but I was in Costa Rica teaching a, a course, which is why I sent my little dispatch called Reading Galeano in Costa Rica. I assigned yeah. Galeano to my students. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, some of them were were pretty fascinated by it, but um, uh, his Costa Rica has no army. They abolished their army. They had a civil war in 1948, and a private businessman raised a militia, and was so um, the army was so ineffective that when he uh, defeated the army. Um, and and he didn't he he became you know whatever caretaker of the government for a brief period and then he actually gave power back to the civilian authorities which also rarely happens um, but the army had lost all prestige so they just never reconstituted it so Costa Rica yeah. has no army um, yeah. so there's all these jokes like when you see pelicans flying over the ocean they're like there's the Costa Rican Air Force <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I mean they have police. Uh, and they, you know, they have, there's like, it's not, it's not utopia just because they don't have an army, but it is very interesting because they do have more resources to allocate to education and, and healthcare and, and things like that. Um, of course, we have a neoliberal government that's come in. It's interesting because uh, the grandson of that person who overthrew the army in 1948 was running in this election and he, and he <laughs> lost. <laughs> People were just like, no more of this dynasty. It's just a neoliberal so, like everyone else. But so yeah, it's not yeah. like the Philippines where, where that name where, is. Where, yeah. 
so so <laughs> yeah costa rica what else can i tell you they have they have a bigger percentage of their uh territory is national parks you know national parks have yeah. problems too but uh you know a lot of banana and a lot of former banana plantations are now uh mm. national parks <clears throat> uh, there's lots of tourism but it's sort of um it's a fantastic ecologically you know in ecological terms like if you want to see wildlife it's a pretty amazing place to go uh see the monkeys and the toucans they have very low um energy consumption per person there yeah uh, almost all the energy is hydroelectric mm -hmm. and it's interesting too because they have they really have met their hydroelectric needs in terms of mm -hmm. they have uh, a lot of electric you know they have the electricity that they need they have an it industry and like yeah. a lot of uh you know they have a lot of advanced they make a, like pharmaceutical uh they don't make pharmaceutical they make they make medical devices and and uh and and stuff they have a they have a pretty substantial like manufacturing base too uh and it's all on hydroelectricity uh and but there have been serious struggles against expanding the hydroelectric capacity because mm -hmm. they're like we don't need it what are you gonna you're gonna you're gonna yeah. build more dams to to make more electricity and sell it you know again to try to try to sell yeah. it on a market that also doesn't necessarily need it um so this is like yeah. it's a lot of like the pipeline thing too right where they it's it's not even really progress um to have yeah. all, to be building out this infrastructure even hydroelectric even sustainable mm -hmm. renewable energy infrastructure where you don't need it for for any reason there's this drive to like expand it um yeah. and that is damaging even if you're expanding even if you're just running co2 through the pipeline you know yeah. or you're running yeah, yeah. so yeah uh, yeah they've demonstrated uh, very well that on, on a, a low per capita energy consumption you can right. build a society that ranks higher in its uh, yeah. human development or sustainable in uh, development index than the United States and yeah, and a lot yeah, of exactly. countries. And they're very so they want to go and ruin it then by uh, yeah. wanting to do more. They're very sophisticated too because there are farmers um, who do organic uh, farming. We we went to a guy's farm. It's like a family farm, and he was like very very bitter about the fact that certain pesticides were uh, banned because he was like, look, he grows like cacao coffee pepper uh and a few other things but those are his main things and it's you know 10 i don't know 15 it's like double digit hectares so it's not like a massive farm um and he uh he was just kind of complaining because he was like i am not allowed to use these he's like which is okay it is what it is but he's like i'm competing in the market with foreign products that do use these yeah so he's like, why, if Costa Rica wants to forbid me from using these pesticides, yeah. why don't they stop importing products that yeah. use those pesticides, right? Which I thought yeah. was legit. That was fair. Oh, yeah. Was fair. Very much. And he, he had honey. He was growing honey. Um, you know, he had he had a beehive, stingless bees, and, and he mm -hmm. produced honey. And it's like really, really high quality honey, which he sells in France to a cosmetics for cosmetic use 
because France won't import food honey because they protect their <laughs> they protect their oh, farmers. Yeah. And he's like, <laughs> you know, Costa Rica will buy French stuff, <laughs> but France won't buy Costa Rican stuff. So that this is why Galliano um it was good to read Galliano because that's a yeah. lot of the theme of the open veins of Latin America is right. the fact that the, the global north has protectionism and the global south does not. Yeah. Right. So uh yeah well that's my that's my that's my story okay. today stan my my world travel <laughs> report <laughs> report <laughs> so we'll see you uh after the the march what's the march called again for people who might be listening who might go in the dc area <laughs> it's got a really long name but it's a, a, a march on uh, washington and to the polls for um uh, uh, justice and the, uh, and the environment and uh, democracy and uh, the march for nice things. We yeah, are marching yeah, yeah. to have nice things. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and you know, Code Pink. A lot of organizations are um, allied with it, but it, it's led by the Poor People's Campaign. All right, <laughs> we will see you in the next dispatch. Okay. <laughs>